welcome back to Season 5 of the Hearsay Podcast. I am Stephen Hodgson, and today, along with Sarah Dallin, Divya Chawla, and Robert Billack, we will be continuing our conversation regarding all things human rights with Professor Jean Munn and former Chief of the Alberta Human Rights Commission, Mr. Michael Gottiel. This is the third and penultimate episode of this topic. In the spirit of reconciliation, before we begin this episode, we would first like to acknowledge that Hearsay is recorded on Treaty 7 territory. We acknowledge that Treaty 7 territory is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, consisting of the Kainai, Pikani and Siksika, as well as the Sotina Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis and Inuit, who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today, and those who have gone before us. We make this acknowledgement as an act of gratitude to those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. What kind of changes do you think you'll see? I know you mentioned there's probably going to be more focus on systemic issues at the commission level. Do you foresee any kind of changes in how the commission does its outreach, for example? And as kind of a a segue on this, perhaps Jean can speak to this as well. How would this apply now? Because obviously the commission is the Alberta Human Rights Commission, would this have to apply to all places that aren't on reserve? How would those two things go together? Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. Um, You know, in terms of jurisdiction, I mean, this is a challenge for Indigenous people and communities. You know, generally, the rule is if disputes or claims of discrimination happen on reserve, then that's federal jurisdiction. If it's matters that uh, occur off reserve, then it's provincial jurisdiction. There are some, you know, types of cases that are more on the line, certainly like in healthcare, who's responsible. And, uh, you know, this is part of the, 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 uh, the case we were talking about before. So there are jurisdictional questions. You know, one of the things that I think commissions across Canada are doing is trying to, you know, develop linkages. So, you know, rather than, you know, telling an Indigenous individual or group that comes to the Alberta Commission, sorry, you're in the wrong place, you have to go see the Federal Commission, you know, are there ways that we can transfer the case without, you know, sending the person to the back of the line. But, But in terms of your question about outreach, I think this is a really, you know, important, uh, that's really an important question because, and, and I, I think that in many discussions uh, around access to justice, there's a recognition that courts and tribunals and commissions, you know, are not alone. They don't work in a vacuum. I mean, you know, community groups, support organizations know that because they're working with marginalized communities, communities. Uh, that, you know, supporting communities that where people have been traditionally disadvantaged, whether it's low income, you know, people living in poverty, people racialized communities, LGBTQ communities, people with disabilities, you know, these many, many, many women's shelters, immigrant settlement centers, all these organizations that have infrastructure and connections and, and are trusted by these communities 
And I think more and more tribunals and hopefully the courts are recognizing these are resources that people already use. And, you know, we should be linking with them because these are people, these are organizations and, and the, that are trusted. You know, many, and, you know, we know this in indigenous community, they don't trust the legal system. And for good reason, generally things don't work out well when uh, indigenous people interact with the legal system. And so we have an obligation to work with and reach out and you know, coordinate so that where, for example, indigenous individuals want to engage with the Human Rights Commission or other legal, uh, you know, uh, seek other legal recourse, they're supported with trusted information and mentors and, and others who appears who have greater knowledge. So we have started to develop what we call navigator programs where we link with community organizations, uh, do training, and, uh, you know, uh, try to build that uh, local support network and have that connection. Well, I think I speak for all of us here when I say that that is something that is, sounds like a very exciting development, especially in lines with the calls to action and ongoing reconciliation. I, I really hope that the fruits you've mentioned come to fruition because it sounds like a fantastic initiative. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast on CGSW 90.9. Sort of, I think, feel thing we've been dancing around uh, is problems with the way the system is set up. So I'm wondering from, from both of you, uh, what do you think the biggest problem or shortcoming with the commission or the system is right now? Well, from a practitioner's point of view, from a complainant's point of view, um, the biggest problem is the amount of time that it takes for even uh, the most minor of matters uh, to be dealt with. So it is typical at the tribunal stage for a hearing to be, well, it was typical at the tribunal stage for a hearing to be held five or six years or seven years after the complaint was made. That is no longer the case. Fortunately, it's changing a lot, but it's still a very long time between the date the complaint is made and the date that uh, a decision comes out of a tribunal. That's still our biggest problem. I think Chief Godhill has a lot to say about this because he's created important reforms in the commission over the past few years that have speeded up that process significantly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd say two things. One, just on, on the, on, on in the area that, that Jean was mentioning, I, I think that is a problem. I think that commissions and tribunals across the country all have the same problem. You know, some delays are much worse than others. But, you know, I, I, I think that what commissions and tribunals need to think about, because there's never going to be enough money. Uh, you, you know, I mean, no government service is really funded to the extent that it needs to be these days or or would like to be. I mean, I'm not going to make you know comments about you know government policy and so forth. But I, I do think that there are ways to be more strategic 
right? So the fact, the reality is that the commission in Alberta, and again, it's pretty much the same across Canada, you know, will settle, you know, between 60 and 70% of the complaints, which is a good thing. And, and so what we want to make sure, I think, is that the front end of the process is, is, is efficient and expeditious enough to get to those settlements quickly, right? Even if that, because of resources, it may take longer to get to a hearing, if it doesn't settle, you don't want to take, you know, two years to get to a mediation and then it settles. But if it doesn't settle, well, within a year later, you have a hearing, right? It's better to have a mediation within six or eight months and then take three years to get to a hearing, even though you don't want to wait that long. So I think there are ways to uh, be sort of more strategic about with limited resources, uh, understanding how cases are resolved, looking at that, trying to adjust, um, you, you know, uh, adjust the processes. The other thing, I, just on a somewhat different note in terms of uh, the system, in Alberta, as, as, as you know, uh, we have the Human Rights Commission which includes what everywhere else is called the commission and the tribunal. So in every other province where there's a commission-based system, uh, as we have in Alberta, the commission and the tribunal are separate, two different agencies, two different uh, crown agencies, and for obvious reasons. I mean, because the tribunal, uh, because the commission is a party before the tribunal where a, the commission refers a complaint, right? So, so you want to ensure that the tribunal is independent. Now, I used to think coming from Ontario that how could you have a commission that has the uh, sort of the complaints resolution and the prosecutorial side in the same agency under the same chief as the tribunal? That's, you know, that's like having the police and the crown and the judges all under one, you know, chief justice. There, you know, there's a problem with independence. What's interesting is I find that that you know there are structures in place that address that. I think, you know, quite appropriately. I think the bigger problem in Alberta is that the chief, in my role, because I am also the chair of the tribunal, I'm more limited in the role of a public advocate. So in all of the other provinces, your commission or the chief commissioner can truly be a public advocate for human rights, can speak out, can on human rights, can take positions that may be aspirational, can take, you know, just today, today's National Housing Day, the chief commissioner of the Canadian Human Rights Commission put out a statement about how housing should be seen as a human rights, as a human right, and what the government should do about that. Well, you know, regardless of what I or the commission here in Alberta thinks about whether housing should be a human rights, because I am also the head of the tribunal, I'm much more limited in what I can say. And so what happens in I think in Alberta, there is 
we don't have as forceful a public advocate or a public voice for the aspirational you know, side of human rights. And I think that's a problem that I've seen over the years. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, so we don't wanna to spend too much time on this next question, but we just wanted to ask Chief Gautil if you've experienced any human rights complaints in relation to COVID-19. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so a couple of things. So one is, you know, as, as, as uh, Jade mentioned, uh, and, and I've talked about, you know, the commission at, at the front end, we, uh, part of, of, of the commission's role is we have a confidential telephone inquiry line. Uh, so we field anywhere between eight thousand and twelve thousand calls a year just people calling up you know I, this happened to me i'd like some advice uh is this a human rights complaint we get calls from employers and potential respondents service providers what's my responsibility you know somebody has a disability they want time off work you know what's my duty to accommodate so we have all sorts of absolutely since COVID 19 and the mask requirements and now vaccine we have, our call volume has gone up 20 to 30%, all on COVID-19 related things. And many of those, not all, but many of those are people who are just angry. They're calling us up, you're the Human Rights Commission. I shouldn't have to wear a mask. What are you gonna do about it, right? So we've had a lot of angry calls and, um, and you know, that's, Part for the course. I mean, you know, uh, we see many, uh, you know, in many areas, um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused all sorts of, you know, has raised all sorts of questions about government policy, our responsibilities to one another, what it means, you know, what do human rights and, and liberties mean uh, in the context, uh, you know, generally and in the context of a public health emergency. So it, I don't think it's surprising, but yes, we've seen that. Because it takes a while for complaints to move from the commission stage to the tribunal, we've only had a few cases that have come to the tribunal. Uh, I've written three decisions recently. There were two dealing with masking cases. Well, all three dealing with masking cases. And there are people who, in two of the cases, people who said they uh, had medical exemptions. The third case, the individual said he had a medical and a religious exemption. And, you know, essentially, you know, not surprisingly, well, all three cases were dismissed on the basis that it is a public health emergency and the stores that were the respondents had provided alternatives in terms of curbside pickup or home shopping, online shopping, and that sort of thing. I, I, I think the, you know, some of the more difficult or challenging questions will be, and we haven't seen them yet, what about, you know, employers who, who implement, a you know, vaccine mandates, saying you need to be vac vaccinated to come to work, and if you can't, uh, because you have an exemption or you won't because you don't want to, you have to provide 
test, you know, uh, proof of, of, uh, of uh, that you've been, you've had a, a test and who's going to pay for that, right? And I, I think, I think we've yet to see some, you know, decisions on, on the vaccine side of it. And uh, the other thing I, I, I think what we're, you know, when it comes to vaccines as opposed to masks, I think it, it is a more, you know, what we're seeing, it is a more difficult question. You know, many of the mask cases are people, well, you know, it's really about you're not going to tell me what to do. Uh, in the vaccine cases, many of them, there are people who, you know, say this is invasive and, uh, and uh, you know, this invades my body, my body. These are privacy issues. And, and what's, I think, quite interesting is, you know, and, and this almost is full circle to our discussion, what we started with, which is the difference between the charter and human rights. You know, there may well be uh, a charter claim of security of the person. You can't force me to, you know, stick a needle in my arm and, and inject me with, with a vaccine. Uh, and, you know, I, I, full, you know, full disclosure, I'm vaccinated, I'm not anti-vaxxer, but I can see where there could be an argument. I have no idea what, in the end of the day, whether that would amount to a violation of security of the person. Certainly, there's going to be a Section 1 argument. Uh, we know that. But, you know, I, I can see where, you know, somebody could say there's, there's a claim for security of the person. Uh, in terms of vaccines, whereas I just don't see under the Human Rights Act, there is no uh, nothing in terms of security of the person, right? I mean, you can you can say I'm being discriminated because of a disability, but if it's somebody who simply says I don't have a disability, I'm not going to get an allergic reaction because of a vaccine. I just don't want to have to be vaccinated, and it's my body. I think we've yet to fully, you know, to see cases that fully explore that question. I would like to see somebody argue that religion and the human rights legislation has to include conscience. Now, religion is a fairly old fashioned concept that involves deities and rules. But what if your value system is perhaps even more virulent, uh, but has nothing to do with the deity. So I think that um, some good ingenious arguments could be made. Um, interestingly, Chief Godhill, I don't know if uh, we told you, but the um, human rights assignment, which involves drafting a complaint and doing a memorandum in the uh, nature of a, a legal opinion to a client has to do with a complainant who doesn't want to be vaccinated to go to work for the health authority doing IT. And so it'll be interesting to see what arguments come, are coming up. This is a follow-up to both of your answers in this discussion. Is there a mechanism if they, because I imagine there will be eventually a, a line of complaints related to this, would the Human Rights Commission ever just say, okay, you're better to get a remedy from a charter context? Would they ever turn a claim down on that basis? Or would they try and adjudicate it in some regard, well, through the tribunal, you know, offer um, 
I know they can be guided by charter principles. How would that process look? Well, it's been done before. So in the Vreen case, the Alberta Human Rights Commission refused to hear this fellow's complaint that he'd been fired because he was gay. Uh, they just refused to hear it. So that would be perhaps something that might happen. The director would say, there's no, there's no claim here based on the parameters of the legislation. Then you'd have that person request a review and a, and a, uh, a member on a, what's called a section 26 decision say, no, I think religion does include conscience. And then you could have a respondent go to appeals on that uh, or judicial review. I um, I don't know what would happen. I think it's most likely a director at this point is going to say, depending on how it's framed, that uh, doesn't belong within the, the purview of the Alberta Human Rights Commission. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast on CGSW 90.9. I think there's, there's, you know, there's a couple of different situations, right? So, you know, we have had people call and I, I, you know, I don't deal with the complaints at the front end. So I imagine we've had some complaints that have been filed, you know, against the Alberta government for implementing the mask mandate or, you know, vaccine policies in terms of uh, you know, mandatory vaccine to enter, you know, to enter, um, uh, you know, retail establishments or restaurants or, or that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, in those sorts of situations, we would just say, look, we there's, you're not alleging any violation of the act. And there's been a couple of cases out of British Columbia that are similar, right? That people have filed human rights complaints against the public health, Bonnie Hendry, who's the chief public health uh, officer of British Columbia or against the premier for bringing in vaccine or mask mandates. Uh, and, and the human rights tribunal says, look, we just don't have jurisdiction. And, and those are situations in which, you know, potentially there's a charter claim, but I'm not, saying it would be successful, I don't know. But potentially there's a charter claim based on, uh, you know, maybe freedom of religion. If the person says, you know, my religious beliefs are such that I can't take a vaccine or can't wear a mask, you know, that's fine. But of course, human rights has to be grounded in a particular area, right? I shouldn't say grounded because that mixes up with ground. It, it's that I was refused employment or I was terminated from my employment or I wasn't allowed into a restaurant or I wasn't allowed into a store without a mask. And, and so, or I wasn't provided a service in a hospital. Uh, so, but if, if it's just somebody who says, I think government policy violates my rights, well, that might be a charter claim, but it's not a human rights complaint, right? Unless they've been denied service or employment or housing. So I think in those situations, we would just say, look, we don't have jurisdiction. Now, in other kinds of cases, it may, uh, there, there, there may be an overlap. And I'm thinking of a case uh, about a year ago that we had in which a firefighter 
uh, alleged that he was being forced to retire and take pension at the age of 55, I believe, or 60, I can't remember, 60 maybe. All right, and uh, part of the collective agreement and the pension plan uh, provided that you, you, get, you get full pension at the age of 60. He didn't want to retire. He said, you know, it's discrimination based on age. And of course there was discrimination based on age on the face of it. However, the Human Rights Act has a provision that says where a distinction is made on the basis of age, uh, there are a couple of other grounds, but at least age, in respect of a pension or health and benefit plan, uh, that, the, that there's no violation of the act. So it, it makes an exception for age violations in relation to pension or health and benefit plans, right? So, uh, and most human rights acts across the country have that. I mean, it allows for mandatory, not mandatory, but it, it, it allows for different levels of health benefits when you reach a certain age or differential premiums, you know, based on, on, on certain factors, those sorts of things. Now, so when this complaint was filed, that complaint, uh, it was dismissed because there was an exception in the Human Rights Act that said uh, a, a distinction based on age in respect of a pension plan is deemed not to be a, a, an act of discrimination. Now, there's no question that that individual could have said that provision of the Human Rights Act is violates my charter rights. Now, again, whether uh, he would have been successful, whether it would have been saved on section one, I don't know. In some provinces, the Human Rights Tribunal is entitled, is a court of competent jurisdiction and can decide charter questions. So in a case, but not in Alberta. So the case of Tranche Montaigne, and there's another case uh, which, which said that uh, a tribunal that has the jurisdiction to decide questions of fact and law is a competent, as uh, 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 a court of competent jurisdiction to decide charter questions, unless the legislature specifically removes that jurisdiction. And in Alberta, the the Human Rights Act removes the tribunal's jurisdiction from deciding charter questions. So, in a case like that, if that individual, that firefighter, said, okay, fine, yes, there's an exception, but I wanna challenge that provision of the Human Rights Act. He would either have to go to court and challenge that, or he would ask the tribunal to state a case to the Court of Queen's Bench to decide that charter question in the context of his human rights complaint. So there's an example of where uh, the two, uh, in addition to what Jane talked about, uh, where, the, where the two could overlap. Was the case you were thinking of Dore? Uh, no, so the case, no, it's, um, no, it's, uh, it was R ver uh, Conway, R versus Conway. So that was, uh, uh, no, Dore is a case dealing with charter values, but no, R versus Conway is a case 
in which a review board uh, or a, a, a tribunal that uh, makes decisions about uh, for individuals who are found not criminally responsible because of a mental illness, whether they could decide charter questions. And the Supreme Court said they could. The Hearsay Podcast would like to formally thank Professor Jean Munn of the University of Calgary and former Chief of the Alberta Human Rights Commission, Mr. Michael Gottiel, for taking the time to interview with us today and providing our listeners with some invaluable insight into the processes and procedures surrounding the Human Rights Tribunal and the Human Rights Commission. The Hearsay Podcast is proud to present you with legal information, but it is important to remember that this is information and does not constitute legal advice. We are law students, not lawyers, and the podcast is purely for informational purposes. If you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer, as there is no substitute for a professional. Thank you for listening to the Hearsay Podcast. The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CJSW and Pro Bono Students Canada at the University of Calgary chapter. We would like to take this opportunity to thank CJSW for all of their support. If you'd like to hear more podcasts like this, the Hearsay Podcast can be found on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time.